In this episode, we're having a conversation with the faculty of Maricosta's Cultural Curriculum Collective. What is a classroom? Is it a Zoom meeting, a space, or just the students? Change challenges classrooms. Uh, okay, okay, okay. There, there's, there's a lot of C's in this one. You'll, you'll see. Oh, oh, that's okay. Yes. So, Shantae, what comes to your mind when you hear the word classroom? Um, the first thing that comes to mind for me is collaboration, and I think that really comes from my perspective as a student, um, where a lot of my experiences in the classroom felt very like one-sided, very much like I was always being controlled and told what to do and what to produce, and there was no space for me to insert myself. And when I did, it usually did not end well for me. Um, and so kind of transitioning over to a faculty position, I really like center my experiences as a student, you know? So I remember when I was a student, these were the things that really, you know, highlighted or messed up experiences in the classroom. And so I really try to make sure that my classrooms are very collaborative. Like I'm flexible with syllabus, you know, and assignments and let the students insert, you know, what they want to learn and what they want to get out of the class. You know, ultimately they enrolled in the course. So I like to make sure, you know, I don't leave students like I was in a few courses, like, man, why did I take that class? Like, what did I learn? I don't even remember what I read. And so I really like center my experiences for becoming a faculty member. Shante, that, uh, you know, when I hear you talk about this imbalance um, in the classroom, I, I think I know what you mean. And we try to do differently when we are in that position of instructor. Can you give a specific example of maybe a time where you really felt that imbalance and then um, how you try to approach it differently in the classes that you now teach? Oh, yeah. So the one that always sticks with me was actually my ninth grade English course. Um, and, you know, we read through books that a lot of them, I one, I couldn't connect to the material I was being given. So it was like Of Mice and Men, I think was the book that just really like, for some reason, that book really sticks with me. And we always had to write these they didn't even call them reflections. I don't even remember the name of the assignment, but mine never aligned with the perspective of the teacher. So when I would turn mine in, I would always get subpar grades. And I, I was a like, really like a perfectionist with my work. And so I would always be like, I get A's in all my classes. Like, why are you giving me C's and D's? And it was really because she didn't agree with my perspective and how I was, you know, interpreting and reflecting upon like what I was experiencing as I was reading. So I just remember looking at my paper and she's crossing out all of the eyes. Like every time I said the word I, I, I had red marks everywhere. And so, you know, now that I'm, you know, I'm on the other side, you know, I remember kind of like being forced to remove myself from my assignments. And I, so now I have in this, my assignment, I call them personal narratives. Like the whole idea is that you're inserting yourself into the topic into the conversation. And so I don't, you know, I read them and I give comments and things like that, but I don't rip people's opinions apart. And, you know, that experience of when you get it back, and you're like, well, I put a ton of effort into this. And just because, you know, it's a different perspective or a different interpretation, I get a C, you know, so I really try to avoid 
that's just not my style of grading. It's like you turn it in, you get credit, I'll read it, I'll give you feedback, connect it back to sociology, and that's just, you know, the total of the assignment. Yeah. We've got three English teachers on this particular podcast, right? And and that I know I know for me, the can I use I in this essay is a constant question. And I I at this point I I I, I respond with. I'm actually kind of hesitant to say I allow you to do anything in, or disallow you to do anything in this class um, because of the experience you're speaking to, Shante. Um, Jabi, I know you're, you, you use a lot of personal narrative and, and stories, that especially uh, stories that counter these sort of dominant narratives in your class. What, what, what are you thinking about uh, in response to that? Can I use I? <laughs> <laughs> I think that... Uh, I'm with you and with Shantae because I think my my experience mimics Shantae so well. The the classroom space where you you kind of find that sometimes in our own maturation into teaching that uh, teachers who don't understand who students are often try to take out the I. And what the I statement means for a student is is so important, especially for a a student of color. And for me, I grew up in, a, I have a huge family. I have six sisters and four brothers, right? And so like the I, it matters in your family because often your, your parents are probably calling you by the wrong name, um, but you're also fighting to have a voice amongst your siblings, right? And so in the classroom, when you're among classmates and, and you're competing on, on the paper, the I matters so much. And I, I think I'm with you, Curry, in saying that like, now, as a as a professor on this side of English, I, I find it hard to to dictate what a student will say on the page and how they say it. When you know, given our our certain our current social climate, we know that much of the way that language was dictated is is behind racist notions, and so there is that aspect of it, right? And so, how can I tell a student you cannot use I? when who you are matters so much to what you write. And I think that's really a, a really important distinction. I think I love that Shante said collaboration is what comes to mind when, when she thinks of a classroom, because for me, community means a lot to me in the classroom, right? Um, and that's because of my own, <laughs> my own um, experience as a teacher and as a student. Um, I started my, my teaching in the high school. And so in high schools, your classroom is your space. My first year as a teacher, I didn't have my own classroom. The school was so big that I was given a cart and I had to move from room to room. And so the second year when I had my own classroom, I was really excited because I got to design it, right? I got to put up the posters. I got to decide what went in there. I had my own desk, my own closet. Like this, this was my space, right? And in that space, I wanted to create a space for students, a community. So often, during my planning periods and after school, students would be in that space and they, they want to communicate with you and they wanna find social um, experiences with others. And so that community space of the classroom matters so much. And creating that community begins with like giving everyone a voice, right? Letting everyone know that what they have to say matters in this room. And I value that and also want you to value what I have to say. I, my word was going to be community too. <laughs> so um, I think I, I have sort of a unique experience in that I teach in a non-credit program. And so we the students that come into our classes are 
non-traditional or they, you know, it's, it's like a one room schoolhouse type of um, thing. So we have um, students who weren't successful in their um, comprehensive high school. So they are continuing their high school education with us. Um, they aged out or they faced life circumstances and now they're returning. But we also have a pretty significant number of um, second language learners. And so we're in this space where I'm trying to um, encourage them to see their identity as being their greatest superpower as they're learning to write and as they're learning to socialize and as they're coming into this community space where there, there are highly educated people who don't speak English as their first language. There are students who faced a ton of challenges and barriers in their original or, or comprehensive high school experience. And they're not really sure how not only to write about themselves, but how to uh, socialize and associate with these other people. And so in my classroom, we spend a lot of time building community before we do anything else, because I want them to come into my space and and start talking to each other and start engaging and start sharing with me. I probably create more work for myself than is maybe necessary, but I change what we read every time I teach my classes because I wanna draw from what's going on in their lives, the things that they're sharing with me, the educational paths they're hoping to get onto. So if I have a lot of students that are like, I wanna be a nurse, I'm like, great, let's read something that has to do with that. And so I think that if you tell a student they can't put I into their writing, into their work, it's almost like them telling them they can't bring the I into the classroom. Like you're going to come in here and you're going to be a version of something that I have pre-designed and pre-prescribed. And, and that's just not fair to them. It just doesn't, um, it doesn't encourage their best work or their authentic work. And if they can't be authentic in what they're doing, certainly we have a series of standards or outcomes that we want to get them to, but if you strip away who they are and what they are, and you don't let them start writing and speaking and engaging and socializing, then the product you're going to get from them might look a certain way, but it's not going to feel good to them. And it's not going to feel good to you. And it's not going to serve them as they move into other spaces, whether it's academic or career oriented or their family spaces. I love that Javi talked about his family because the eye can be so important in your family. And so why shouldn't it also be important in the classroom? Well, there's this thing that I was thinking about, and I think when you're maybe in an English class or a sociology class, that's more applicable. But, you know, I'm taking like a lot of math courses and you don't get to say I a lot. So um, what do you have to say for like instructors in STEM who maybe are dealing with a lot of formulas and equations instead of like hearing what each student has to say? I think for me, um, and obviously I'm not a STEM instructor, so I can't speak to like the difficulty in doing something like that. But I, I think that in every class and in every discipline, we should be finding ways to allow students to develop outside of just the formula and just the, you know, the content. Because, you know, I, I took STEM classes, obviously. It was like GE requirements, but I can't even tell you much about those classes, except for maybe like some experiences that I had with the, with the instructor. Like I had an instructor who would bring in fruit all the time and like, and so those are the things that I remember what eight plus years, you know, down the road. I don't remember, I could not look at a plant cell and tell you like what's going on, but I can tell you kind of the experience that I had in the classroom because 
it was personalized in some way. We were allowed to explore a different aspect of the learning and the community and the environment. I think contextualized learning has gained a lot of momentum for that exact reason. And, and I think community is the other piece of it. So even if you're in a math class, if you're learning formulas or you're in a science class, if you can contextualize the lesson, if the instructor can, um, either in your identity outside of the classroom or your career path that you're pursuing or, you know, something that happened that morning or bring in something from the outside that sort of engages, I think it, it helps students see themselves more fully and, and remember those moments. I love that Shanti said, you might not remember all of the details of that class, but you remember something relevant and compelling about the experience of being in that class. I mean, I think, Mona, you probably know there's some classes that even if it's not like your career path that you, you're just excited to go to them, you like kind of know like this is going to be a fun class. It's the one when you don't feel good. You're like, oh, I don't want to miss that class either because the content or because just you have a sense of community when you get there that you're like, oh, I don't want to miss. And then there's those classes where you're like, yeah, I could totally miss that class because something about it doesn't compel you in the same way. And so I think it's really important that instructors, regardless of their field, try and find those moments of contextualized learning or community spirit. I think it's also bringing a piece of yourself to the room, right? And like, uh, that's so important. And uh, I know plenty of STEM professors who are really amazing people who are interested in some of the same things I'm interested in, but they never bring those things into the classroom for their students to share. So giving yourself giving a piece of yourself to the community and not standing up on this podium thinking that you have nothing to share with your students, right? Um, what comes to mind most is um, I used to adjunct at San Diego City College and there's um, DJ Rob Shadow there who is a math teacher and he does math instruction using vinyl and um, hip hop records, which like I'm all into, right? And I, I have dyscalculus, so it's really hard for me to understand math. I never took math and I took one class in college and like was just done with it, right? Um, but and on this particular day, he was teaching a lesson to students and I happened to be sitting there and for the first time ever, because I know hip hop and I love vinyls, I learned something about math. And I was just like, what? How come none of my professors in college or none of my teachers in high school were were trying to connect with me through their personal interests using their, their content expertise. And so I, I would encourage professors to find that way to authentically connect with students. I'm not saying go out and learn how to DJ, but I am saying you do have something about yourself that students would find interesting that you could apply to your instruction. Yeah, and this is and this is a space where we really can learn a lot from um, our K through 12 colleagues and the more project-based approach that happens in those kind of spaces where there are those connections, right? Like if, if you have something like uh, cooking as a project, there's math involved, there's science, there's culture, there's, there's um, you know, all of these different elements that are wrapped up into what the lesson is and the students get to steer it, right? And the students get to take it in the directions that they want to go. So I, 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 I'm hearing a lot, of, a lot of ways that people in any discipline can make those connections, do that collaboration and build that community. You know, what this conversation has me thinking about is uh, a community of inquiry approach to teaching, right? Um, where there's sort of the, there's like three basics to that approach and it's 
there's a cognitive presence, which we're used to the sort of, you know, structures that get us thinking and building knowledge. And then the teaching, pre the teacher presence, which we're also kind of used to, which is that, that guidance and that, that feedback, but then it adds a social presence and that that's actually first, right? And what you have to do is build shared interest around these questions that we're asking, which Angela reminds me of what you said earlier about, I always teach a new book. Like I want to be kind of on the edge of my own understanding of this discipline. And Mana, when you asked that question, it made me think of my uh, pre-calculus and calculus teachers, where one in particular we had on the pod a couple of episodes ago, David Bonds, he used to always ask us when we felt stuck, uh, what we believed in. It was always, do you believe in distribution properties? And we'd be like, um, well, yes, I, I believe that that's true. Okay, well, if we use that belief in this situation, what can we do, right? And so it was this ownership of, yeah, that that's a thing I have confidence in, I can use that, right? And so it was this sort of, that's owner, that's knowledge I own, right? And so I get to assert myself cognitively in that moment, right? And I, and I also think with math in particular, you know, there's so many choices around like things like syntax. Like if I'm going to add these numbers, do I set them next to each other? Do I set them on top of each other? Like what is the more efficient way for me to see these in relationship to each other? And then what can I do with them? There's some like, sometimes we think those are rules, but really it's just, how are you thinking about it? And what's the most effective way to structure this uh, so we can get at what we need, whether it's a solution or a proof or whatever it is. So there's all, and Sean, what you just said makes me think about how important choice is. And that's really the I in the classroom, right? And so projects, these approaches where we open the space and kind of allow students to own a, a direction or, or, or a question, um, it's all about choice, right? Um, and that's, that is the I, right? Who, what I choose and what, I, what I'm interested in. Mano, what, as a student, what do you think of when you hear the word classroom? Well, I think the first thing that I can think of is a community, like Angela said, because it's just you, you go in a class and there's a bunch of people sitting there and you have your instructor. And the first thing that you see is just the people that are there. You know, nothing's being taught. Um, you're not discussing anything. So I think of community and I do think of opportunities for discussion, opportunities for learning, opportunities for connecting and socializing. So I think I look at it as opportunities. And as you guys were talking, I really liked how you brought up having a choice. I just, as a student, I love having a choice. I think choices just make you more creative just allowing you to kind of like tap in and be like, hey, I think this works really good for me and I, I can actually succeed in this. If I choose this, this path or if I choose this assignment, I think that's just something that I always think makes me creative. And I think just having that flexibility allows great things to come out of that. So that those are the things that I think of. Yeah, as Mano was talking, I thought of something and this happens to me kind of a lot. I don't stand at the front of the classroom when my starting my classes. I never stand at the front. I usually stand somewhere else in the classroom or sometimes I sit down. And so most cases when I do that at the beginning of a term, when the students walk in, they don't know that I'm the instructor <laughs> and they don't think that I am. Even when I stand up, they're like, you, you sure? But like, yep, yep, it's me. But it's interesting what that does to your classroom space when you're first meeting your students. So you're just there and you're observing and, you know, the first choice that students make when they walk into your space is where to sit. And it tells you kind of a lot about them. Sometimes they congregate. Sometimes they show a level of insecurity about being at the front. 
sometimes they're like so far in the back, you're like for real, but there's something about that too. And so I think it's important to, to be thinking about even that as a choice that helps you open up the space to create dialogue and community and how you engage and interact with them. Um, because I, I also do a icebreaker activity where I ask them their favorite breakfast item. And <laughs> we talk a lot about it and we laugh and, you know, a lot of times I get like cigarettes and you know, coffee, or I don't eat breakfast or, you know, I eat lasagna. And it's a really interesting thing because even breakfast, if we're going with like the theme of choices, like what you choose, the students, some students are like, oh my gosh, I eat that too. And so it really just, it, it opens up that very first opportunity to say who you are, what you want, what you choose. And then you get to carry that tone over into assignments and into experiences and into other interactions Sometimes you have to lead. There's always the students like, no, 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 I don't want to choose. I just want you to tell me what you want because I'm just going to do that. And so I'm always, yeah, I got that too. Um, but I think it's interesting to, to think about how, how choice impacts students in all the different choices they make within a day. Um, something you said just kind of reminded me of one of the experiences I had um, that reminds me of this idea of hierarchy in the classroom. Um, where I had an instructor, it actually happened twice. And I think sociology is a really unique major in that we come across professors that are just willing to try some wild things to, to prove a point. And so, um, you know, I had an instructor at Miracosta. We walked into class and he was just sitting at the back table. Like he was sitting, actually, no, he was on the floor. He was sitting on the floor because he's just like this wild, like character. And of course I knew him. So I'm like, like what is he doing? But just kind of rolling with it. And the whole idea of the, you know, his, in, the way he was approaching us as students was just like, I'm, you know, I'm here to help facilitate this space. Like, I don't want to stand in the front because then there's this assumed authority and, you know, everyone is just facing you and you're standing, everyone's sitting. And so just this idea of like, oh, I'm the authority figure. I'm, you know, creating the structure. Um, and so when I started doing workshops and um, I haven't got to teach a class in person yet, but I'm hoping that this will happen one day. But I always told myself like, I, I like to sit in circles. Like I, when I do any workshops, when I did them on campus, I have my, and I sit right in the circle with them. So it's like, we are, and I think that's another part of like building community, but also breaking down the hierarchy of like the front, you know, the front row student versus the back row student versus, you know, the student in the corner closest to the door. There's all of these assumptions. I think that one instructors make, cause I've had a few comments of like, I was always a front row person because I was taught that front row is letting your instructor know you're serious, you want an A, that's the A row. So not only like the, the teacher student hierarchy, but also within the classroom with like creating this, oh, those are the A students. So the back row, you must be the F students or like the students who don't wanna take this class. There's all of these assumptions. So I've always told myself and I enjoyed like, just circle it up. It takes a little bit to move the desks, <laughs> you know, make sure you move them back. It takes a little bit of time, but I think it really just kind of helps break down some of those walls in the classroom around hierarchy. Shantae is saying circle up, remind them. So K through 12, how Curry was saying earlier, we can learn a lot. Uh, classroom design is, is, is a staple in K through 12. Like the way you place desks matters, right? And so one of a part of my time was spent at a fellowship at, at Stanford when I learned where I learned all about how to get students to engage and facilitate their own discussions. And that was my favorite term to them was to circle up, which made them know that, oh, we're going to move into a circle today. So discussion is happening. 
And that, that idea of being in a classroom where you can walk into a space and feel welcome, you know, whether your teacher's sitting on the floor, whether up in the front playing music, no matter what's going on, students need to have the ability, ability to walk into a classroom space and feel welcome, right? There's a lot that is said by, about a teacher who stands by the door and greets everyone or uh, the teacher who makes um, seating accessible for all so that students never feel like they have to sit in the learning teeth in order to be, you know, heard or to be called on by a professor. I mean, that's really important. And now in this era of Zoom, we lose a piece of that, right? And so how do you design your digital classroom space so that students still feel that they are welcome, that their voices are heard, that they can interact, that they can engage with one another and still be respected in that space. And that's a, that's a huge thing that not only that we're learning as professors, but our, our K through 12 um, teachers out there are also learning to, to combat with and against the bad things that might happen from. Yeah, Javi, you're posing that question philosophically and possibly rhetorically, like, how do we do this? Can I ask it? <laughs> to you practically, like, how do you do that? <laughs> and really, and, and, and Shantae, I'm fascinated to hear your answer to this too, because it sounds like you've never taught in a classroom. It's all in this weird remote setting. So I don't know that we can answer the question, but, but what, what I wanna ask is where do you see the circles in Zoom or in Canvas and, or in these online spaces? Where, where do you see the circling up? I think for me, it's giving students the opportunity to to share in smaller groups and breakout rooms with not only academic questions, but questions that allow them to feel like an expert, right? Where they can share with others and talk at length, because I think that's what we all fear in college, not, not having something to say when somebody else is talking to me. Like, that's huge, right? Like, I don't want to just be sitting there quietly when everybody else is talking, right? Or maybe you do, right? Um, so creating those spaces in your classroom where students can break out and, and talk with one another freely, um, but also in the whole classroom space, creating opportunities for, for students' voices to be heard, whether that's through pre-populating who will speak that day on a, on a given topic. Um, I use a kindergarten tool called Classroom Dojo, and I like randomly select students and it, I didn't choose you, the dojo chose you, and I, I can't help that it wanted you to speak at that moment. And students feel more free about that because they know that they, they're being selected by the machine, but they're, they're also having their, their voices honored within the circle. And then as a facilitator, I'm really trying to encourage students to, to give affirmations when someone has said something that you enjoy, either through the applause, through the reaction button, as a chat affirmation, really getting us all involved in honoring one another's voices so that we don't feel like we are in isolation while in isolation, right? And I think for me, um, one, it was something I really was like really worried about because I feel like I'm, I'm better at doing what I'm doing in person. <laughs> like I, I just, you know, so I was really concerned and like teach starting to teach online, but I think my like circles or like the community spaces in my classroom really center on the topics and like the, what I open up pretty much anything is up for discussion in, in my classes. And I really allow my students to choose like, you know, when they, especially knowing I started teaching the summer bridge class um, which is designed for Black students, you know, right after the murder of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor, you know, so the weight of that 
in going into that space really had to have me thinking about how do I make this a space for the students to like talk through these things, but also, you know, of course, connecting it. And again, sociology is one of those disciplines that it feels like it's a more natural fit. And so I, I allow my students to really say what, and I make it clear, say what you want, say how you want. You can, I use Padlet a lot in my classes, um, especially when I sense like silent moments are good. I think, I think that moments of silence often don't mean that people aren't paying attention. I don't assume that, you know, silence is a bad thing, but when that happens, I'm like, you know, I'm going to generate a Padlet really quick. Like let's jump over, move to an anonymous type of space that you can just, and then I read them. I'm, you know, I go through and I kind of add the voice for that. And then usually I think only one or once or twice, but usually students will just be like, yeah, I wrote that and here's why. So kind of taking ownership of, of that. And then just giving them that space of, of, digesting and I'm very open with how I'm feeling. So if I'm going into my class and I'm like, man, today's a heavy day. And like, here's why there's a lot going on. I don't silence the world when I step into this classroom and I don't expect you to do the same. And I think just starting out in that way and just being really willing to kind of like, you know, we were supposed to talk about deviance today, but that I'm not feeling that. So let's, let's switch gears and talk about social justice or talk about social movements and, kind of just, again, being willing to center how the students are existing outside of the classroom opens that door for, you know, community building and the idea of being in the circle. You know, I uh, did a lot of work and I was a Yamoja student. So it was very much like, it reminds me of like bringing it to the porch. Like whenever anything happens, we, we open up space and we, we call it bringing it to the porch. And that's why we have porch talks on Fridays. And so I really just kind of, keep that with me, regardless of, you know, the, the students' backgrounds and things like that. But they really just take to that mentality of, you know, this is what's going on in my life. And, you know, I'm coming in today and I'm not all the way there, but I'm here, you know, and I think that allows just humanizing, you know, humanizing the classroom experience is really important. When Shantae said the hierarchy of the classroom, and Jabi talked about dojo, it made me think one of the things that's happened on Zoom is there's no longer a front row. There's no longer a back row. And there's lines, you know, the Brady Bunch tiles, but there's no like, everybody has an equal place at the table on the screen. And so I have found that students that in person were a little bit hesitant because of where they placed themselves in the classroom, they were hesitant to speak, or I think most of us, I was a front row student also, and I love to talk. I love to raise my hand. I love to, but it's because I have that, like, I feel the confidence to like, go ahead and put it out there. And I think sometimes the students who sit farther back, the longer they stay back there without having opportunities to engage, the more likely they are to default to the students in the front. And they sort of stop uh, requiring of themselves that they engage in a different way. They're like, ah, Angela will answer the question for whatever. And so I think for me, Zoom has created this space where everybody has an equal seat at the table, but you also have to teach them to use the tools because Jabi talked about Dojo. Like, I think it's really worth taking the time in this space to say, if you want to contribute on chat and that's where you're at today, do that. If you only want to use your reactions today, I love a, re a good reaction. I mean, I'm always waiting. The second that heart or that party hat comes on, I'm like, yes, I connected with someone. Like they took the time to go in and do the thing. 
or if you don't want to do that, if you want to send a private message, I love the idea of Padlet. I think that that's really, those are really powerful ways to help students start taking baby steps towards being the ones that contribute. And I'm actually hopeful that Zoom will cultivate a confidence in students when we return on ground that allows them to see their contributions as being more valuable. I mean, they can't, you know, give me an emoticon, but certainly they, they, I think will hopefully gain some confidence and some momentum from more positively or more um, consistently contributing. And then I also think um, Shantae said this, you have to give them an opportunity to like be themselves in every moment. And so like when I put my students in breakout rooms, it's not always just about the prompt. I tell them, take a second, check in with each other, ask questions. Don't talk about the assignment if you're not ready to talk about the assignment, because I think the loudest voices are the ones that for whatever reason came the most prepared. So you ask them like, hey, we read this or we're talking about this concept and they're like, yep, I'm ready and they're in it. And the other students are like, maybe they didn't read it all the way or at all, but they still want to contribute. And so if you give them a space where they can just talk and share and they all have a voice and then you move into the content, even if they're not as confident as the other students, they've already contributed and created a sense of community. And so maybe they'll be willing to contribute to the conversation with with their perspective, even if they don't feel as fully informed as the loudest voices in that space. I found in graduate school, the loudest voices were the ones who were unprepared and didn't do the reading and just were like, I'm going to just say my thing. And it's in complete contrast to what we were supposed to be doing. But then also with what you said there, Angela, I think about this kind of leveling that you're talking about in the Zoom space. I'm not sure because I think, has the cameras on become the front row? Because that gets prioritized in the way that we look at the tiles and gallery view, right? And so are those students, and I don't know if they're participating more per se, but are they, are they prioritized in some way in our minds, implicitly or explicitly, because they're willing or able to have their cameras on? Well, I totally struggle with that. Uh, and I catch myself all the time not calling on students who are black tiles and, and, do, and I do call on students that are the you know, cameras on. I like to, to, to present if, if you haven't noticed. So black tiles don't bother me. Like you could put your name up. I'm still going to give you 110% of my energy. And I, I make it a point to, to call on those individuals. Um, one, one of our colleagues has an amazing way of moving through Zoom and honoring students who were there, regardless of whether their video is on or not. And I, and I encourage all colleagues to do this because it helps them to tune in. You know, it's easy to tune out when you're at home. There's so much going on, especially um, if you're a student who maybe has their own room and you got your TV right next to you, you know, it, you zone out, right? And so calling on students consistently <laughs> wherever, uh, whenever you can, I think, really helps that space. Um, and then also encouraging students to, to maybe flip on their cameras, but not point it at themselves, point it somewhere else, which I, which I borrowed from another colleague. And that has really helped students to, to show that they are in the space, right? Turning my camera up at the ceiling or holding our textbook up for the day as my, as my image, right? Letting, them, letting us feel that they are, are in that space. But to lean on Sean's question, I think that it, it it does kind of lie with us to ensure that we don't let that become the space that we are cycling through the screen and, and maybe talking at just that student's name for a bit, as opposed to finding that 
that individual's face on the screen that we want to talk to. I, uh, I, I got to observe your class recently, Javi, and I remember one of your students had the camera pointing at a fan and you were just going through your, your awesome teacherly moves and you're like, I forget, the, I'm going to make up a name. Uh, Justin, I see Justin's a fan today. And then you see this hand come in front of the hand with the big old thumbs up and then back draw it away, you know? And it was perfect. It's like, it was a fan, but that was a person and a personality and a presence in the classroom. And yeah, it worked great. It's awesome. <laughs> so something I did that halfway worked and I, I could probably like iron it out a little more because I did it just very impulsively, but I offered my students extra credit to make their own like can't like on Canva, you know, you can make those little and the canvas, they can use a free account, just make a little tile and upload it to their um, zoom account where it's like pick two things that mean a lot to you. And I had people and some of my class did it, some of them didn't for, you know, obvious, whatever reason. Um, but I think it kind of gave them like a little bit of agency and like, okay, I don't want to show my face, but like, here's my dog and my favorite coffee cup, or like, here's you know, some things that are around me. I had a student who uploaded pictures of her and her daughter. And like, so it kind of created that. And I think for me, of course, cause I, again, I started teaching online. Um, I was used to very workshop style where it's like, I like to make eye contact. I like to like find people and just, I'm just a very just social person. So I had to check myself a lot and be like, just because their camera's off does not mean that they're not there. They're not engaged. They're not present there was a huge and I also work with Oceanside Unified um, so I kind of see how they you know respond to their students and in the camera thing and there's like you know when Zoom first happened there was like this expectation or like this assumption shall I say that cameras off had a meaning behind it like their cameras off because they're just doing something else you know and so that kind of you know I had to really check that assumption when I first started teaching not necessarily over the summer because I was just a very separate experience in doing summer bridge but going into my fall class I really had to check myself of like it's not about you like you're centering yourself you know you're you're centering what you're expecting this this engagement that maybe everyone can't do for various reasons and so I really just that's why in my, my black studies class I'm teaching um this semester I'm like I'm going to figure out a different way to give them that that ownership, that kind of like personality-ish type of thing that they can upload on their Zoom. And most of my students enjoyed it and they still have them on. So it makes me feel like, okay, you know, and I give them extra credit for doing it. I think it's really interesting that a lot of people think you can change almost everything in a classroom except for instructors. So my question to you guys is, is this really true? And if yes, like how often do you feel like a student can change you? Hmm. Well, so <laughs> I'm I'm stuck in my ways, Mana. So uh, <laughs> no, I, I think ever since I started teaching, I, I have always wanted to be responsive to, um, to students. And so I think the way I think about it is I've got, uh, and I think I've even said this on the podcast before, there are students who are my future students. So I'm planning for them. And I'm, I'm really trying to think about, okay, what's, what's going on right now in the world? What's going on right now in my discipline? How can I make this relevant and interesting to folks I haven't even met yet, right? So there's that group of students and that group of students, even though I don't know them, 
they're changing my course because I'm imagining them in the seats and I want them to have these great experiences. And then there's the students that are actually in my class. And so how things are landing or not landing well, that's going to change me in terms of what I do in the classroom, right? Um, and then there's my past students, right? And then, so these are the students who have given me feedback uh, and we'll talk a little bit more about feedback, I think after in a, in a moment, but, but so that kind of, those prior students are also changing me uh, based on their experiences and how things went and, and how far they, you know, what they explored or didn't explore what I intended, et cetera. So I think I'm constantly in this recursive sort of examination of my class, my teaching, um, based on what my students sort of report and feedback and, and experience in the class. You know, I feel like the process of professional learning and what's often referred to as professional development, when we get these ideas from like conferences and books and all these other places, in a way, it's, it's students changing what we do in, in a very indirect way. It's not like an individual student came and told me a thing and it changed what I did in the classroom. But if I implement a certain philosophy or a certain structure in my class, it's usually based on data that has come from other students succeeding from that particular structure, right? Mm -hmm. And in that way, students change what I do all the time when I engage in that kind of professional learning and I, and I decide to implement parts of it into my teaching. In the immediate though, with my, my students in my classes, I mean, they change the dynamics of the class all the time. And, and I try to, you know, do those check-ins and, make sure that we're, we're all on board with what we're doing. And if we're not, we can make adjustments in real time. And, you know, I wanted to replicate this kind of, this idea of like what, what we do outside of the classroom as much as possible. And I feel like that's what we do in our families, right? Yeah. And that's what we do in other institutions that we belong to, that we want to contribute to them. There's a structure in place for sure, right? And there's a people that are more in charge of the facilitation like me, but the the feedback and the way that things actually go, you, you gotta pay attention to that or else you're not really gonna be effective. And maybe more importantly, you're not gonna have everybody having the feeling of significance and that they're actually contributing to something which is going to not just improve their performance, but improve their overall morale in whatever situation they're in. So. Yeah. Yeah, I, I just want to say, you know, those are really good points. I don't know, for some reason, I feel like as students, we always get that feeling like there's no way that you can change your instructor. And, you know, it's like it's set in stone. But now that I'm hearing it from you guys, it's totally different. It's just maybe that sometimes we don't see it immediately. Then, you know, that might actually be a reason why we assume there's no change. Yeah, well, and I think if, if we if we dig a little, I really like that you brought up family, Sean, because I think that's the relationships we have with students are really important too, in terms of how, at least for me, how I change. And I think this cuts both ways. I think if we don't pay attention to this, we tend to have relationships with students that we just connect with. And if those students are self-advocates, they'll, they'll maybe move us to accommodate or to make little changes here and there because, oh yeah, I know you, I know what you're intending. I know, you know, you have integrity, blah, blah, blah sure, I'll make this little adjustment for you, right? And that, that's a natural thing that, that happens. If we don't pay attention to that, though, it can be unfair. If the, on the other side, though, if we, if we strive to have relationships with all our students, then we can, we can get to that place with all our students, right? All our students can have an opportunity to 
make us aware of changes we ought to make because of where they're at, right? I guess, you know, it's really just kind of a way of practicing equity, right? Yeah, and I feel like students do change the way that I, I, I think about my job, but I, I think students might get frustrated with me sometimes because they, the way that I approach teaching, I kind of, I, I take a lot of myself as a person outside of the teacher role out of it, which is weird, right? Because, you know, you want to be, uh, we were just talking about humanizing in a conversation off, off the recording here, but, you know, I think I, I try to give a lot of my personal self to, to the students, but at the same time, I, I kind of keep my, my own ideological and political views yeah. out of it, but not, not completely. Cause I don't think you can ever do it completely, right. but I, I, I think a lot of students by the end, I ask them, do, do they know how I vote? Right. Do they think they know how I vote? And they, they say, no, they're like, I, I have no idea how you vote, how you would vote for, for just about anything. And I'm like, that's kind of something that I am proud of in a weird way, yeah. but I think it's frustrating to them too, especially because if they are enjoying the, the class, you know, there's that feeling of like, they want to know that I'm on their side <laughs> and they don't quite know if I'm on their side in, in some particular ways. Yeah. But what I want is for them to just, because we're talking about the, the social issues that are really politically charged. And my thing is like, can we just think more and more about these? Like, can we keep expanding the way we're thinking about them and add the nuance, add nuance to the way that we're thinking about them as opposed to let's just really hit it hard in one way. And, and I've been in those classes that have hit hard in one way and I, I kind of liked them, but at the same time, I did feel like we're, we're missing, you know, a lot of elements here. I don't know if that makes sense. I'm kind of going off on a thing, but yeah. <laughs> no, that's interesting. <laughs> Have students ever changed the way you vote? <laughs> uh, again, I think like as more of like a, a larger population, yes, you know, and considering them and their lives and how, how certain things are going to impact their family. Now, I wouldn't say change the way I vote, but reinforce why I'm voting the way that I am. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. See, I'm not specific again, just in case they listen to <laughs> Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, nail you down, Professor Davis. Right. But that's really nice to hear. As a student, that's just, you know, it, it reassures you that your instructors actually care and that they're listening to you. And, you know, they're not just teaching, you know, just to go through the syllabus and just to uh, make sure that they've covered all the objectives. So I think, you know, you are actually in a way humanizing it and you are actually hearing us and listening to us and actually taking action so i just love it cool and what i meant by that was like i think that there's a desire to want me to change right, mm -hmm. right. like they want me to give more of that or they want me to um you know uh, students who are more on the progressive side of things want me to show a little bit more of that in the class and students who are more conservative may want more of that from me as well and so yeah well, and change, change can be big and change can be, I don't want to, small is the wrong word, but I mean, just when we, when, when someone comes into my life, my life is different, right? Yes. Maybe I still behave in similar ways or do things in, in routines in similar ways, but you being part of my life, my world is bigger. It's expanded. It's more inclusive. So that's the, the most amazing thing about being a teacher, right? Is if I am 
teaching, uh, supporting students, but also creating space for relationships, then yeah, that, that's gonna automatically change me in really amazing ways. Students and faculty engage topics. Dangerous discussions need a safe space. This episode is supported by the Miracosa Foundation's Innovation Grant. The Safe Topics podcast is produced and engineered by Kelly Barnett. James Garcia handles promotion, student recruitment, and research. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and safetopics.podbean.com. Find us on Apple and Spotify. Please rate and subscribe. Thanks for listening.